Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to How Magicians Think. Such a pleasure to have you with us. This episode is called What Do You Believe? How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. It's about taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary. I want to take you behind the curtain so that you can see the inner beauty of magic and appreciate the world's most secretive profession in a whole new way. I'm Joshua Jay, and this is How Magicians Think. Welcome to the show. Sometimes after I perform a magic show, people will come up afterward and ask a question that I sort of can't believe that they would ask. Because people usually ask really smart questions like, where do you learn your secrets? Was Houdini as good as everybody says he was? And my whole book, How Magicians Think, is about these really good questions. But among these questions, once in a while, smart, intelligent people will ask me a question that at first blush, I think, you should know better than to ask me this. But then I realize what they're asking is really profound. And the question is this. Is there such thing as real magic. And the circumstance that they ask this question in is such that usually I'm in a hurry or it's after a show or I don't have a whole lot of time to spend unpacking the root of this issue. So I try to let them down gently. I try to answer their question honestly and without insulting them. No, there's no real magic in the universe, I explain. I'm a magician. It's entertainment. It's sleight of hand and psychology, but there's no such thing as real magic. But I I know there's more to it than that. And when I think about this question, my mind wanders to a particular moment when I was in Ecuador. And that moment made me rethink how I answer the question, is there such thing as real magic? So let me take you now to that place. I was in Ecuador deep in the jungle, and there's this place in the Ecuadorian jungle, it's actually kind of a cloud forest, where there's a clearing, a flat clearing, and then there's a cliff. And this cliff is a gorgeous vista of the ocean. And you can stare straight down to your certain death as you look into the water that is crashing upon these shores. And the reason that I find myself in this cloud forest at the end of this jungle to this clearing to where this cliff is, is because I had heard that you could see real magic with turtles there. You heard that right, with turtles. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know anything else about it, but I knew that anytime I mentioned while I was in Ecuador that I was a magician, people would say, do you know about the turtles, the magic turtles? Oh, you have to see this, you have to see this. So I went. 
And here I am with my guide, and I get to this place where the turtles are. And there are two, basically, kids there. They offer tours of the magic turtles. So you pay them this fee, I think it was five bucks, and they walk with you down this path that takes you right against this cliff. It's this crazy path that is not safe and not handicap accessible and definitely not anything official. But you walk down this winding path, to your right is forest, to your left is a sheer drop into the ocean. And first you walk up, 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 then the last five minutes, you're walking down and you're actually quite close to the ocean, close enough to hear these waves crashing, looking out. And on the day that I went, it was sort of a cloudy day, but I get there and the guy looks at me and in broken English sort of says, are you ready to see the turtles now? Yeah, ready. And he reaches into his sweater and he removes a beautiful handcrafted flute. And this flute is clearly handmade. It's not exactly a flute. It's some instrument that has been made locally by a branch off of this tree. And I ask him a question about it and he's sort of vague and he explains, well, it's a special kind of wood that helps with the magic. And I wait. And he concentrates for a moment. And then he puts his lips to the flute and he begins to play a song. And as he plays this song, his friend, the other person on the journey, has his arms outstretched as if he's praying, but his palms are upright as if he's absorbing something in the universe. His eyes are closed, and he seems to be summoning some kind of power from the music. He turns his palms down toward the water, and I kid you not, he aims them at the water, and as he does this, I see turtles emerge from the water and come to the surface. First it's one, and then a second one, and then it's three, and then it's five, and then it's seven. Seven enormous sea turtles. You know, we're talking like two feet across. Submerge from the water to hear this music. And in this moment, I realize I am seeing a magic I don't understand at all. There's this moment that we talk about as magicians called the moment of astonishment. And it's a very brief moment, typically. It's even more brief when you're a jaded magician like myself. And that moment of astonishment is the feeling before rational thought takes over. Usually when we see something impossible, there's a split second. It doesn't even have to be a magic trick. It can be the end of a film. When you are so captivated, you are so swept up in the moment that you live in this pure state of mind. And that's called pure astonishment. And here I am stuck in this moment as a magician, very rarely is fooled and sees anything they don't understand. I am swept up in this moment of pure astonishment. Okay, so the moment passes and my rational mind takes over. I'm going, first of all, this music that's coming out of this flute can't possibly be heard down below by the surface of the water where these turtles are. Second of all, if these turtles are under the water, they can't hear the music anyway, unless it's some frequency I don't understand, or this music is somehow being projected into the water. Thirdly, how could they be in the vicinity of where the flute is playing to know? 
I just, I don't understand. There's, I look out into this expanse. There's no pen for these turtles. There's nobody in a boat who's just released these turtles. Or there's nobody swimming in the water who's corralling them up. I'm still totally fooled. Now, you guys understand the difference between pure astonishment and being fooled. Being fooled is telling yourself, I know it can't be done this way, but I don't know how it's done. Pure astonishment is that beautiful moment before you're even asking those questions. I stood there, long after the music had stopped playing, staring out into the expanse. By this time, the sun had come up, the clouds parted. The turtles were long gone, but I was left with this inexplicable memory of seeing a magic trick that totally obliterated my mind. It took me by surprise. It took my breath away. I cannot overstate to you the power, being a magician who usually knows how these things work, of being completely mystified. Now, I could stop this story right there, and you would leave with this really sweet story of a magician who ended up discovering real magic. And in my mind, this story has two parts. I just told you the first one, but I'm here to tell you that there is a solution to this magic trick. There is, unfortunately, no real magic in the universe. And I don't think that that's an ugly thing. I think that in a way, that's a beautiful thing. You see, the second part of this story, how this turtle trick works, is really, really fascinating. And I'm going to share it with you, how it works and how it changed my memory of that trick. But I'm not going to do that just yet. You see, at the core of this episode of How Magicians Think is skepticism. This balance between illusions and mystery and our need to know. Our need not only to know, but our need to communicate that there is a method behind illusions and magic. So I'd like to start by introducing you to Jamie Ian Swiss, a magician and also who I believe to be magic's finest essayist. Jamie has written several books on magic, and he is also a skeptic, one in a long line of skeptic magicians. And I started out our conversation by asking why it is that magicians, not scientists, not psychologists, magicians, are often at the heart of skepticism. Here's what Jamie had to say. The first lesson that people learn when they get involved in magic is that things are not necessarily exactly as they appear. The relationship, the interconnection between magic and critical thinking and rational inquiry and skepticism is one that goes back centuries, more than four centuries in the written record, the first book that ever described magic tricks written in English, published in England was The Discovery of Witchcraft by Reginald Scott. It was not a book about magic. It was a book intended to debunk the witch burnings of Jamesian, just pre-Jamesian England. But there was a chapter in it of 22 pages of how magic tricks work, designed as a kind of model, as a kind of lesson that if skilled conjurers can fool smart people in these ways, then people can be fooled in other ways. Things are not always as they seem. And the heart of that had to do with Houdini's message of it takes one to catch one, that all of the academic and scientific training in the world does not prepare you any better than anyone else to 
not be fooled by a magic trick. You and I don't get paid just to fool foolish people. We get paid to fool everybody. The modern American skeptic movement is really founded by a bunch of smart magicians. PSYCOP, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, which was organized by a philosopher named Paul Kurtz. And the initial founders, other than Kurtz, they were all magicians in one form or another. There was James Randi, who really was the lightning rod, the face of the skeptic movement. Randi was joined by people like Martin Gardner, who wrote over a hundred books about a numerous subjects, but especially about magic. The other leading national organization for quite some years while he was alive was the James Randi Educational Foundation. Most famously offered the Million Dollar Challenge, where we had a million dollars in escrow that we offered to anyone who could demonstrate a paranormal ability under mutually agreed upon test conditions. An idea that Randy had first offered himself personally, a personal $10,000 check decades before, and an idea that he drew from Harry Houdini, who offered a $1,500 prize back in the days of the first formation by Scientific American of the first committee for psychical research. And then a struggling magician comes out of Israel bending silverware, allegedly with the power of his mind. And now another magician comes forward, another escape artist and rationalist, James Randi, to battle that, not just that individual, but a new age theosophy and channeling, right? In the 70s, Shirley MacLaine wrote like six best-selling books, much of which was about channeling. And channeling is basically like bad ventriloquism. It's somebody sitting there talking in a funny voice, except you can see their lips move. I'm fascinated by this idea of belief and the relationship that it plays with skepticism. Because when I do a magic show, the assumption is that I'm doing it for rational thinking adults who know that there's no such thing as magic or ghosts. But actually, it turns out that that's not the case. A study in 2005 found that 31% of Americans believe in telepathy, 32% believe in ghosts, and 41% in extrasensory perception. Despite an abundance of reality television shows that say otherwise, there's never been a shred of evidence supporting any of these phenomena. They are as fake, sorry, as real, as a magic trick. And think about this, I am doing magic tricks to recreate these kinds of phenomena, extrasensory perception and mind reading and moving things with my mind for an audience that is perhaps 41% unsure if it's real or fake. I just can't wrap my head around that. And more than anything else, that saddens me. It saddens me because the beauty of our art is that it is an illusion. It is an illusion that we create, and knowing that it's not real is part of what makes it beautiful. This weirdness that possibly people could be thinking that it is real, more than anything else, saddens me. Now, that might strike you as odd. Like, why would I be upset by that? Who is it really hurting if somebody happens to believe these magic tricks are real, or even if they're entertainment for me, that maybe they could be real for somebody else? I'll tell you why it's sad. And we'll come back to the turtles. Because there's a little more to this story than I started out this episode by telling you. You see, when we were done, I was escorted by my guide back to the parking lot, which wasn't all that far from where this turtle illusion happened. 
And I was so struck, I was so shaken to my core by seeing something that I just not only didn't know how it was done, but couldn't for the life of me even guess at how it was done. That I just asked for a little time. I just wanted to stand there and think about it and marinate in that moment. And that's when it changed for me because I saw other people coming back from their turtle experience, crying, sobbing, really upset and affected by what they were sure was a hand of God, what they were sure was a religious experience. And while I wasn't sure how it was done, I was pretty sure that it wasn't supernatural, that it wasn't the hand of God, that it wasn't some inexplicable miracle that we had seen, but something with a rational solution. And yet here were all of these people crying. They were bringing their own baggage to this turtle illusion. This was the place where they buried their father and they scattered his ashes. And now the turtles are speaking through their dad. I talked to a couple of these people and asked them about their experience. And and they just felt so close to whatever supernatural being they believed in was. And whatever it was that, that was causing this turtle illusion, I knew it wasn't real and that this was a false hope for these people. So what was the turtle illusion? How did it work? Well, I'm going to keep you in suspense a little while longer because before we go into this, I want to talk about the one figure you can't ignore if you're going to talk about skepticism and magic, and that's Yuri Geller. In 1973, a young, handsome Israeli named Yuri Geller burst into the world's consciousness. And Geller bent spoons with his mind, duplicated drawings made by people isolated in other rooms, and he could stop borrowed wristwatches with his mental powers. At the time, he claimed that these powers were bestowed on him by aliens from 53,000 light years away. Yuri Geller even fooled leading scientists at the Stanford Research Laboratory in California, where he was able to conduct some of these experiments in what they called at the time scientific settings. But of course, as we know now, if you're familiar with the name Yuri Geller, it was all a fraud. Yuri Geller can't bend spoons with his mind. He can't duplicate drawings from people in other rooms. He was, like all mentalists, an entertainer. But he didn't pass off his miracles as entertainment. He passed them off as the real deal. And here again, we come to this moment where history meets the present day. I cannot for the life of me believe that there was a time when my family members were alive that this was considered real. And in fact, I have an aunt who went to Kent State University and saw Yuri Geller on the circuit when he was at the height of his powers and fame. You know, you have to remember, Yuri Geller was as emblematic of the 1970s as disco and disco balls and roller skates and chia pets. I mean, he was a part of the zeitgeist. And I asked her, was Yuri Geller the real deal? And she said, I don't know. It depends on who you ask. There were spoon bending parties where we would all go to a party together and try and bend metal with their minds. And I asked her, did it work? Of course not. So what do you think? Was he real? And she shrugged and said, it just depends who you ask. And that's to his eternal credit as a performer and his eternal detriment (laughs) ethically, because he was able to convince people that his powers are real. And I don't care 
what other magicians and critics have said, I don't think that's an easy thing to do. I don't think any other performer before or since Yuri Geller in the modern era has managed to convince people on such a grand scale that his powers were real. But of course, ethically, how can he possibly approach people whose children had been kidnapped and say, I will help you through my telepathic powers, find your kidnapped child? Magical thinking, toxic pop psychology. At the face of it, it seems harmless. Think nice thoughts, nice things will happen. Okay, what's the harm with that? The harm with that is that people who are unfortunate for whatever reason, whether they live in poverty, whether they are victimized by disease, whether they are hit by tragedy, the logic is that it's all your fault. You thought bad thoughts, you thought the wrong thoughts. That's horrifying. And you see that on a more toxic level with phony psychics of all types, including contemporary talk to the dead psychics who are basically victimizing people under the pretense of helping them, of trapping people in grief instead of actually helping them relieve themselves of their grief. To use your powers of entertainment for bad just seems to me a really, really bad look. Years later, after Yuri Geller had sort of disappeared and then reappeared on the scene, but now he's not claiming his powers are real, he's just sort of agnostic on the issue. I got to share the stage with Yuri Geller. And as we'll find in other episodes of this podcast, a lot of times really controversial figures can confuse us because at their core, they're really nice people, even if the things they've done aren't ethical or kind. And I share the stage with Yuri Geller, and he's a gentleman. And he says to me, oh, hey, I want to bend a fork for you. And I'm like, that would be awesome. I mean, forks from Yuri Geller are highly collectible. And if you've got a signed one, they go for big money on eBay. And here he wants to bend one for me to add to my collection. So he grabs this fork off a table backstage and he says, come with me, come with me. And I'm telling you, I go to this spot in the room and he calls me over and he holds this fork between his hands and it just bends. Now, this is not like the turtle story. It's not like I don't know how this done. I know exactly how performers bend metal. He is the inventor, the creator of this particular iteration of this trick. And he does it so flawlessly that I get it. I immediately understand why people like my aunt and the many people who watched never knew what to make of Yuri Geller because the few tricks that he chose to do, he did so exceedingly well, so perfectly that they look like the real thing. And he bends this fork for me, takes a Sharpie out of his pocket, signs it over to me, and it's one of my most cherished possessions. But that's not the end of the story because it sat on my bookshelf for several years. And one day I walk into my apartment here in New York City and it's on day when Janina, the person who helps clean my apartment every week, is there. And for whatever reason, I immediately look to my shelf and notice something is off. And I said, Janina, Janina, There was a fork here, a very important fork. What happened to the fork that was right here? 
And she said, don't worry, don't worry. It was just bent all out of shape. So I straightened it out and it had this black stuff on it. I washed it off. It's in the dishwasher and you can put it back as soon as it's out. Oh my God. My cherished item was gone. But the great coda is I shared the stage with him again. I told him the story. Yuri laughed, bent me a new fork and signed it over to me. So what is the intersection point between skepticism and magic? We go back to Jamie Ian Swiss. The connection between Reginald Scott in circa 1584 and James Randi and modern magicians, the bridge exists dramatically with Harry Houdini because when spiritualism was born in 1848, for about 75 years, we had a religious phenomenon of trying to communicate with the dead. I mean, the idea of communing with spirits is was not a new idea. It goes back literally millennia. You know, Neanderthal man buried his dead with food and tools. It probably had something to do with the notion of the afterlife. But in terms of the investigations of spiritualism by legitimate scientists, in the throes of the new scientific revolution, this was an attempt to unify science and religion. At last, we could use the scientific method to prove religious tenets like the afterlife. There was a lot of sincerity in that initial approach. Now, that became dominated eventually and defined by deception. You know, when they first started communicating, so there were the rapping sounds, right? The Fox sisters, two raps for yes and three raps for no or whatever. And then that was limited. So then they said, well, let's do a code. Let's recite the alphabet. And then the knocks will, if the knocks come on a letter, we can spell out words. That might sound slow and painful, but I have entire books on my shelf that are spirit dictation taken down in that process. It's a big mistake to look back and say, oh, those were simpler people. Those were foolish people. That's not it at all. There was an aspect of spiritualism in some circles that was entertainment. This is pre-electric lights, for goodness sake. This was not just pure irrationality. It was not foolishness. And it wasn't all about deception initially. It was in some ways. The Fox sisters were deceivers right from day one. Houdini, among other magicians on both sides of the Atlantic, were on the front lines debunking what fraudulent spirit mediums were doing because they recognized their own methods. When you're doing physical phenomena, like making ghosts walk and writing on slates and tambourines flying in the dark, you uh, risk getting caught, and you do get caught. You get a guy like Harry Houdini to light a match and see what's going on. And so now, at long last, let me tell you how the turtle illusion ends. You see, curiosity got the best of me. And when I sat there in the parking lot wondering, I couldn't let it go. I couldn't not know. And in a way, that inability to let go, that inability to live in mystery is what makes for the best audience members and the worst magicians. I think that all the best magicians have that same impulse of can't let something go. They have to know. And I had to know. So after my guide had left, 
I found my way back to the path and I snuck back the back way where you go after you see this illusion. Because you have to understand, these kids that, that run this illusion, it's like a path. They pick up groups, small groups of people, they show them the turtle illusion, they walk back through another path, and on and on it goes all day long. So I hid behind this series of bushes and I watched and sure enough, these kids came back, they're with a different family now, and now they're doing the illusion again. And it's just as powerful as the first time I saw it. It's just as affecting for these people. They see it and they're escorted away and the kids disappear. And that's when I saw what happened. Because as I peered over that cliff and looked into the water, all of a sudden, a turtle emerged. Now, there was nobody playing a flute. There were no kid guides there at that moment. I was alone. And all of a sudden, a second turtle came up, and then a third, and then a fourth, and then a fifth. And what I realized is that the secret to the turtle illusion is Mother Nature herself. These turtles are always at this particular position. This is where they feed. And they always come up to the surface on a simple schedule of about two minutes down and 10 seconds up, two minutes down and 10 seconds up. And if you're looking into the water, you are seeing a constant stream of turtles coming up and down and up and down. But that's the beauty of this illusion. You're not looking for it until it's already there. When the kid comes to play the flute, he doesn't say, now look into the ocean, nothing there. It's not a magic trick like that. Look in my sleeves, nothing there. Instead, he plays the flute. His friend sits there and summons something generally out into the ocean, but nobody's looking at the surface of the water. It's not until they point you in the direction of the turtles that you notice all these turtles congregating to hear this music. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, so I waited again. And the next group, and here's this next group, and they're there and they're talking, and he takes out this flute, and again he's talking about the wood and the special song and the special flute. And I'm looking out into the ocean, and I'm seeing these turtles popping up, but nobody there is looking at the turtles. They don't see them. I, I want to shout to these people, look down, there's already turtles. It's got nothing to do with this song he's playing. But of course, we're watching a story we're watching a play unfold, and we haven't got to the part for this group that involves the turtles yet. Sure enough, the hands face downward, he summons the turtles, the music plays, they peer over to the edge, and all the turtles are there, right on cue, and that's the turtle illusion. Now, I'm sorry. I really am to spoil this illusion for you, to pop this balloon. Before I told you how this worked, you had such a pristine, beautiful memory of an unexplained miracle. And maybe it's better, you could reason, to live in mystery whenever possible. There's so few mysteries left that maybe that turtle mystery should be left as an illusion. But I just can't be on board with that. There's no magical words to say to someone, to disabuse them of of false belief, a belief in a pseudoscience, a belief in a con artist's claims. Skeptics sometimes think that it's just a matter of the evidence. Skeptics are concerned with evidence and the nature of evidence. 
And that's why I consider Reginald Scott's book a work of skepticism, or at least proto-skepticism, even though he didn't deny the existence of witches, the possibility of the existence of witches, but he was questioning the evidence that was being used. And that's what skeptics are concerned with. What is the difference between good evidence and bad evidence? And how do you determine testable truths in scientific terms? But skeptics sometimes think that, therefore, if we just present the proper evidence, if we just present the overwhelming evidence, for example, that astrology is nonsense, it'll change people's minds. That's not how it works. And the reason that person gets upset when you start to present that evidence is because what you are messing with and undermining is worldview. And worldview is what determines belief. We like to think that we choose what we believe based on rational choices and on evidence. Skeptics often think that people who believe in pseudosciences don't have any evidence. Not true. Everybody has evidence. So it's very difficult to actually disabuse someone of a worldview. And it's even more difficult today, right in our contemporary times, because with, especially with the internet, people live in bubbles of information. That's hard for others to imagine how perfectly sealed some of those bubbles can be. But the greatest thing we can do to create a more rational world is to start educating children sooner about rational inquiry, critical thinking, and how the scientific method works. I think that magic isn't about just mystery. It's about the artistry of mystery. It's about concealing. And if you don't know there's something being concealed, then you're just being cheated. In the next episode of How Magicians Think, we're going to explore the science of magic. When you think about magicians, you think about psychology and sleight of hand, but actually, secretly, there's a lot of science going on behind the curtain. It is my pleasure to peel back this curtain and talk with some experts in various fields of science and how you can learn about how what fools us is often easily explained by science. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow it on your favorite podcast app and don't forget to fill your friends' lives with magic by clicking that share button inside the app. If you'd like to find more information about me or my career or my book, How Magicians Think, or my tour, you can find all of that at joshuaj.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Joshua J, and this is How Magicians Think. How Magicians Think is a production of Audio Up Media and Vanishing Inc., Executive produced by Joshua J, Jared Gustat, Phil Alberstadt, and Jimmy Jelinek. Written by Joshua J. Audio up in-house production by Jordana Glick-Fransheim and Nate Glassman-Hughes. Edited by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. Sound design and mix by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. For the full list of production credits, please visit audioup.com. You can find more podcasts from Audio Up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.